Hi, welcome to another episode of Forest Spirituality with me, Julie Brett. Today I've got an interview with Emma Restelor for you and Emma has written so many books and they're all wonderful that she's one or she is my favorite author and um, it was just awesome to talk to her. She's been really helpful to me on my path, giving me lots of advice on how to write my book and she also um, was really important to me at the beginning of my journey, um, being a teacher to my teacher and um, having set up uh, or been part of setting up the Gorseth that I was a part of in the UK. Um, her writing is just beautiful and um, speaking to her, um, there's like a depth that she gets into with everything that she talks about that's really lovely to hear. Um, we talked about her um, moving away from being in the public eye um, as a kind of public druid. Um, I was quite curious to see what she meant by saying that she'd moved away from druidry and being a druid um, and not using those terms for herself anymore. So we explored that and found out um, what she meant by that and the things that she um, has kept in her practice or let go of um, and we talked about definitions and um, different expectations that we have on ourselves and on uh, celebrity that she had found herself um, in the place of. Uh, we talk about um, being more of a dynamic self, um, understanding ourselves as, as people that change and shift and don't necessarily need to be defined by other people's expectations. Uh, we talked about language and um, and how that came into um, that discussion. We also went to talking about her experiences in Australia and about the ancestors, which was um, interesting too, and then got on to talking about her work with the Sun Rising Natural Burial Ground in the UK, where she's spending most of her time now. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. We, we also got into um, responsive ritual um, an unscripted ritual and the difference between um, different kinds of roles in ritual, whether we're holding space for people or moving into the, the ritual ecstatic experience um, and different different ways that we can look at that. Um, I really enjoyed the talk and I hope that you enjoy having a listen in too. Um, you can find uh, many of Emma's books online, Emma, Restall or and um, I highly recommend Living Druidry. It's my favourite book. Um, I really hope you enjoy this interview. And um, this was actually recorded about a year ago, so in her summer 2019. And because of everything that's been happening in the last um, you know, nine months or so, um, I haven't had the brain space to get to, um, to editing editing this so my apologies for it taking so long but I think it's kind of nice to have a little moment looking back into a pre-COVID world um, where um, we could talk about things without that having to be part of everything that we talk about um, yeah I hope you enjoy it it's really um, an interesting conversation so thanks so much for doing this it's great to see you you're welcome what can I what what do you want to do how does it flow um well I've got some questions um I would but um I don't know maybe we can just start with um how's your day been your summer what have you been doing with yourself these days (laughs) what's life about life is very full um very rewarding very challenging um, and 
Mm. It's quite quite um, a small. I live in quite a small world now, mm. which I like. I mean, on purpose. Yeah. I have brought the edges of my world right down to something that's very small. So it's very local, um, which is really nice. I'm very much uh, not so much rooted in the land as working within the land. Nice. Yeah. Um, so is that a big change from how things were a few years ago? I mean, um, yeah. I your your last book was published in two thousand and twelve. Is that right? And I have no oh, idea. Oh, okay. Well, the the Wakeful World, your book that that one, <laughs> the internet tells me was um was published in two thousand and twelve. So, okay. Yeah. So um, was it around the same time that you decided to kind of step out of the public eye, so to speak? To, to make Probably it a bit before, yeah, yes, around that time, actually, yes, yeah, that was that was about the same time, yeah, 2012, right, yeah, and actually, just part of publishing a book um, is really difficult for me. I, I write all the time. I am a naturally I write, but the publishing process, the putting myself out. <clears throat> Into a situation where, um, where, where I then become the focus of people's attention, that's quite hard. Yeah. So, um, uh, so, so I, I keep thinking I was going to write another book, um, and I have. I've written two books since then, but right. and I have another book which is all half constructed, and you know, but I don't feel comfortable publishing. Right. That's the trouble. <laughs> Maybe these books will come out after I'm dead. <laughs> oh, right. oh, I hope we won't have to wait so long. <laughs> I do love your writing so much. Um, yeah, I've just I'm quite interested, I suppose, in in that journey that you've had from being such a open and public person in Druidry um, into to going very small into that that world. Um, and and I guess I'm quite curious to know what you've been up to. <laughs> And, um... Okay, so it's a question that people ask me often. I'm gonna hold on. I'm just gonna open the window. Okay. It's a warm day today, and there are builders next door, and the house next door who are now and then are noisy. So if you hear strange men in the background, okay. they're the, the builders. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> um, I think the. Um, Yeah, people ask me quite often why I no longer call myself a druid or why I'm no longer involved in the community and what I'm doing. And it's quite often I, I answer in different ways. And I thought I should actually sit down and work it out clearly for myself what happened in the journey, um, which I intended to do, but then I got busy this morning, so <laughs> you're still going to get another answer. Um, I think the journey to being a, a key figure in the Druid community um, was, it's, it's not like ambition. You know, if you want to be a rock star or an actress or something, then or a politician, a huge part of that momentum is the desire to be out there and to be seen, you know, mm. and I, I didn't have that. Mm. I had 
things that I felt were important. I had discoveries that I wanted to share. I had, you know, words that I wanted to share. But I never wanted to be known. So the feeling of the, the, the celebrity, you know, I'm like a, I was kind of down there, Z-list celebrity, but I, I was known and I would arrive at events and people would know me. And even, even people without, not in the pagan or druid community were starting to know me from the television and newspapers and things. Mm. And I put up with it because I'm, I'm quite good at, I was quite good at that. I'm quite good at standing up in front of 2,000 people or speaking to a million people on the radio. I don't get frightened. I don't have that anxiety about um, uh, public speaking. I never had that. So I did it. But it came to a point where it was being um, obstructive to my spiritual journey. So when you... When you're out there and being heard, there's a wonderful thing about sharing. Do you know, you can give words and people respond. And the responses change your words and you carry on growing. But there comes a point where there are so many people that tell you what you say. Uh, this is what you said, but this is what you believe. And this is who you are. And this is who I imagine you are. This is who I need you to be. And all of that starts to concretize in some way, or it, it threatens to concretize, to uh, to make brittle yeah. the person. And and there's so much you, there's so much me about it, there's so much I about it. It was like, you know, I say this and I say that. Well, I wasn't. It was like, in this moment, this is what I believe and this is what I'm experiencing. But people, naturally, it's what we do, you have a cardboard cutout of a figure or of an author. They're not a real person. They're just what you imagine that person to be. It's, it's, a, it's an idea of that person. Mm. And that idea of that person, you then put back onto that person. Um, and I, I was finding that really difficult. So I wanted to change. I needed to change more than people were letting me change. And people were objecting to me being different and me being softer or quieter or darker than they wanted me to be. Mm. Um, and I found that the natural process of the journey of self, which I spoke about, I've spoken about so much in my books, is that journey of understanding who the I is. This is who I am. And this is the circle, the pattern of me. And this is how the world moves around me and um, affects me and this is how I'm affected by it and this is how I can let myself go let myself disappear so that I become a part of something bigger and this is how I do it in damage in woundedness in vulnerability and this is how I do it in strength and in order to to stop being wounded, stop people trashing and crashing into you, stop allowing people to trash into your soul and change you and make you something you're not. You have to understand yourself. But a part of the journey is understanding that self so you can let it go. 
And so you can be strong, healthy, positive, helpful, useful, valuable in a community where the self is entirely flexible or disappears. Um, and I, you know, there are some places, some work that we can do where there is no self. But there's some work that we do without, if we don't understand that self, where if you don't understand the self, you can get really badly damaged. So in my journey, I needed to let go of myself. And the amorestal or Bobcat Druid structure around me was stopping me from losing parts of myself in a positive part of my spiritual journey. So part of what I needed to do was step away from the Bobcat, the, the Druid priestess. I had, to, I had to stop that. I had to slip away. Um, and be something different. Be something that is softer, quieter, more invisible. And closer to the gods and nature and the wholeness of it all in the process. To be closer to my god, my goddess, the godness um, in, that, in that process. So part of what I did was to do that. Part of the journey of letting go was difficult. I think I hurt some people who needed me to be something. Um, and I let go of things that I still miss. Some of the wonderful, rich Druid community and the ritual and things like that. What, what but, did you yeah. let, let go of? Um, like, yeah, what, what do you sort of maintain in practice or... I'd be really interested to know what, what those sorts of things were. I think... Here's a confession. <laughs> I'm not... I'm so much a cat. I'm so much a solitary soul. Mm. That I've... Through my journey, through my life as a, a human being, I've always found it difficult to join in. Um, so I would always be on the edges of things and not feel well, sometimes be comfortable and kind of invisible on the edges, but sometimes want something more. And in order to get what I needed, that was more, I would start something. I would create, initiate, you know, create or, you know, a druid group or a grove or an order or whatever. I'd create it and then set it up. And this would be exactly how I wanted it to be for 10 minutes. And then other people would get involved and I would adapt and help, you know, other people do their thing until eventually it wasn't quite what I needed anymore. That's that's the problem with being a cat. <laughs> you know, I, I need more canine, more wolf, more tribal spirit in me. Um, but I have, over the last 30 years, come across people, um, mostly women, that... I mean, I say mostly women because that's an important element of it, with whom I could do deep, rich, womb, dark ritual. Really understanding the cycles, the, the monthly cycles, the, the life cycles, the seasonal cycles, the everything that moves through us, where we as women sort of wax and wane. Um, and that I miss. Um, I miss doing that and I have done it now and then with people but I'm too different now I don't have the liturgy 
I always, you know, I wrote a book of which was people started to take as liturgy, druid ritual, which was dreadful. Um, I never wanted to write that book. That was a book the publishers asked me to write. And then I wrote it and I thought, what have I done? Um, and I don't believe there is any liturgy in 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 druidry um, in a way that there is sometimes in Wicca and other traditions. But I don't have the words anymore. I stand up in a space to say something. I reach to my goddess, to the wholeness. And what comes out is, is silence. It's the, the, the human me, the human language, the human connection is mostly a little bit too distant from me now. I think I've naturally moved into a more of a mystic place, which is there's a nostalgia for something that I can no longer do, which is stand in a circle and, and speak the poetry, which is the beauty of our connection, of our understanding of nature together. Um, I love that. Um, but it is, I, I, I don't have it anymore. I don't have those words. My belief is richer, stronger, deeper than ever. Because I'm just walking it. I'm barely talking it. Mm. Um, you know, that, that you've got to walk your talk is such an important thing. When, and now I'm... Um, I don't, I, I, dear fellow said to me the other day he says it's not that you walk your talk anymore you shuffle your muffle <laughs> <laughs> well, very very quietly something very very quiet <laughs> um, but it is all my life is about walking what what the talking is what the belief is part of that is also about druidry druidry is so diverse and when i came into druidry in the 1980s it wasn't that diverse. And through the 90s, it was still a, a more coherent belief system. But slowly as it got bigger, more and more different kinds of belief came in. And there were more and more people who were believing different things within Druidry. Druidry became a community of very many different ways of understanding nature with very many different gods. And... I started to lose it a bit. There is understanding that it is just a community of people who share some belief and some values. But there are too many in the Druid community with whom I did not share values. Um, I'm quite fanatical in my, you know, I wrote a book about it, um, you know, about how we look after the planet and how we eat and what we wear and, you know, totally anti-capitalist, anti-consumerist, all of these things. And it was hard being with people who were happily flying around the world and eating hamburgers and and standing in ritual with people where the values were so different from my own. Mm. And that, again, I, I see that's a flaw in me, like my too much cat. Um, my ethics are a bit too fundamentalist. Um and uh, I just got to a point where I would rather be with people that I shared values with than people who called themselves druids, um, which is more mystics of different traditions and more silence, more naturalists and eco-activists rather than 
people who work in big corporate companies and do druid ritual at the weekend. It seems like um, definitions have always been quite important to you. Like a lot of your books, you talk about definitions. I remember in your Living with Honour, you put a, a an asterisk next to the word pagan because it was yeah. making sure it always came back to that definition that you wanted it to have. Um, yeah. But And, of course, the wakeful world, you're going through so many different philosophical terms and um, it seems like you know, um, this, this journey with how do we define ourselves has been quite important to you, do you think? I think probably, exactly, yeah, throughout my life. Um, I, um, when I first met my husband, um, he was just studying at Oxford University doing philosophy, um, and he didn't really enjoy it, he just, he didn't do much, but I read the books, um, and I loved, you know, reading the books, and, the thing about Oxford University is that it's not like a normal university. It's it's one step out of what's sensible and practical. It really is just up in the sky somewhere doing something that's not really related to the world. And I think that's where I started my love of definition. My understanding that most philosophy, most politics, most ethics, most religion is complicated by the fact that there are assumptions made that we're speaking the same words, that the words that we're speaking mean the same things. I think also, as a a biographical anecdote, um, I lived in Spain and learnt Castilian Spanish. And then at the age of nine, we moved to South America, where my Castilian Spanish got me beaten up physically, beaten up in the playground in school because it was like speaking really posh, very, very posh English, you know, in a rough pub filled with, you know, Cockneys and Irish. You just didn't do it. Um, And so my understanding of language, the importance of language, and making sure that what you say is understood, Mm. I think was kind of tapped in quite hard. Um, when I was young, that also is, makes me love language because I was surrounded by different languages, different accents, different meanings, um, but also the need to understand. Yeah, it's true between English, British English, Irish English, American English, Australian English. You say the same word and it means something different. Mm. Um, and that can be funny sometimes, but often it's not funny when we don't understand that we have misunderstood. Oh, and then you just carry on down different roads of um, comprehension and end up fighting somewhere down the line. Mm. So oh. what, what kind of... People say, not in my name. Not in my name. You can't say that in my name. I'm, I don't believe that and I'm a pagan or I'm a druid and I don't believe what you're saying. So I said, okay, fine. Mm. Let's just describe what druid is then first or what pagan is first. Yeah, it becomes very difficult, doesn't it? Um, I think anything, when you look at it too closely, just sort of disappears. <laughs> Which is exactly where the, the philosophy of linguistics gets up its own backside. <laughs> yeah. yeah, nothing, and everything has sort of fuzzy edges. I always think about the definition of a chair. 
Like, when is it not a chair anymore? When is it just a, a broken chair or a pile of wood? You know, at what point, <laughs> you know? Or a log. Or a log, oh, yeah, a shape like a chair or, or a sofa or a stool or a chair with, you know, just slightly longer legs. And, you, you know, like, you kind of, there's, no, no matter what word you're trying to define, there's always these fuzzy edges and, yeah. um, and a centre that disappears as soon as you start putting it under a magnifying glass and looking at it too closely absolutely so, yeah are there yeah. are there any words that you would use to just define yourself now i am an animist hmm. i have always been an animist and i think i didn't use the word animist back when i wrote my first books because i wasn't i, w I felt in some ways that Druid was an English word for animist. Mm. I don't think it is now. I would like it to be, but it's not. That, to me, Druidry, as I say, it's a community, not a set of beliefs. So for me, my core belief is animism. Around that, or deep in the heart of that, I'm not sure, totally within it, is panth pantheism. I am a pantheist. Probably more pantheistic now than polytheistic, but I am also a polytheist. So the pantheistic, the pantheism is very much a sense of nature, the universe, the all, the wholeness, and is my sense of God or godness. Um, I say godness just to help people understand that I don't mean God in a Mm. Um, you know, a, a Jewish, Muslim, Christian sense. Um, but within that, I have a sense of panentheism and polytheism. But fundamentally, I'm just animistic. Mm. How um, how would you um, distinguish between what you you used to define as druidry to what you now define as animism? What, what's the, the difference in the shift there for you, Ben? Is it just a movement so, away from that community identification or has there been a deeper change? There are two things. There's, there's druidry and druid. Okay. So I would still happily call myself an ovate hmm. and there are times because that's my work. I work with the dead, with the dying, um, with the song of, you know, the, with the land, all of these things to me are ovatic. Um, I am now and then a bard. I do tell the stories. I hear the stories. I still love all story. Um, it's more words than music for me. But the song of the land, the songs of history, all of those. I, I love that bardic stuff. But for me, a druid is a priest. And sometimes I work as a priest, but mostly in an ovatic way. Mm. A druid is a teacher, and I'm no longer working as a teacher. A druid is the judge, the one who, it, it's a role. Okay. Just as for me, the, the bardic, the bard is a role. It's the storyteller. The ovate is, is a role. It's the, the healer. Um, it 
you know, taking these words, storyteller and healer in, in their vast, most glorious, huge way. Mm. And for me, the Druid is the priest and I no longer have that role. And for me to maintain the word as a descriptive of myself is to dishonour the Druids that, oh, who taught me the Druids in my soul, the Druids in history, the Druids in prehistory, you know, the Druids of my heritage. That for me means that I, you know, I've been through the rites. I've said thank you very much. I thank you for allowing me to take that role for so many years. I now offer it back. I'm no longer in that space. So for me, I'm no longer a Druid as a priest. No, I'm aware that that's, it's, it's me being very specific in definition and very specific and you know about the whole thing I think and I understand that other people aren't that specific and that's fine well I understand what you're saying um I I absolutely understand that makes a lot of sense it's really interesting that you'd still use those terms bard and ovate as well and um I had a look on your website and saw that you are working with, with the sun rising natural burial ground and also with the the group called Honoring the Dead, uh, would you is her, that's, I mean, is that your main work at the moment? And that's where you're finding that ovate sort of activity, yeah. I suppose. Would you mind talking about that a bit? Yeah. So sunrising is a very small piece of land, sixteen acres, which was um, fairly low quality land in terms of eco-diversity, um, the richness of the land. Um, and we decided to create a nature reserve. And the, I can't, I don't have the money to buy hundreds and thousands, millions of acres to leave to rewild and reintroduce lynx and bobcat and wolf and tigers, whatever. That's what I love to do. I love to buy up England and rewild it. Mm. Um, but I would, um, I think that the smallest things that we do are important. You give one smile and it, it spreads. You hold one person's hand and, and they hold the next person's hand. That small actions of support, of graciousness, of godness, are important. So for us to create a nature reserve, even in a small piece of land, to look after and to help reintroduce and help thrive all the wildlife in this overpopulated, overdeveloped country. To me, that's like a smile. It's just a little thing that hopefully will spread. In order to fund that, because without money, you know, I've been a druid priest my life. I didn't earn anything. Um, so we created ways of acquiring the land and drawing in an income and making sure that income is strong enough to help ensure that this piece of land is protected forever. Um, and the way we did that, we are doing that, is by burying people. So as a natural burial ground, we move from the environmental ethics using some of those, but also into social ethics. I don't know how it is in Australia. I know in many places around the world, in the developed world, 
that funeral directors tend to charge astronomical amounts of money to lay people to rest in ways which are thick with consumerism and toxins, embalming people and lead-lined coffins and plastics and charging too much money. So what we wanted to do was offer a way that people could lay their dead to rest in a way that's affordable, natural, beautiful, personal, spiritual, whatever they wanted, um, that was a giving back into the earth rather than cremating or something which just adds more pollution and takes more fuel or using plastic or MDF coffins and varnishes and things like that. So that's what we're doing. We're just coming up to a thousand people buried um, on our land and we have space for thousands more. Um, and we're planting woodland and creating wildflower meadows and looking after the butterflies, reintroducing this and that, and basically just doing what we can to create a beautiful environment that helps people find peace with the dead through death in their own dying, with their communities and families, with the earth. Um, so that's what we're doing. It's a full-time mm. yeah, job, Sounds day amazing. after day. And do you work with lots of different spiritual communities or is it still? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, absolutely. Every spiritual community, apart from Hindus who always cremate so they don't come to us, but every other, all kinds of Christian communities from Quakers through to Catholics and mm. even, you know, real fundamentalist folk. Um, and, and, and pagans too? And pagans yes. of all kinds. Right. And Muslims and Jews and humanists who have their own clear, strong beliefs. And the majority of the English population, rural English population, who have a strong sense of God but don't go to church much. Um, so that, And that sense of God is usually very um, nature-based. So most people look around and say, yeah, this is God. I don't see God in a church. I see God in the garden. That's a very rural English perspective, which is kind of low-level pagan. Mm. So that's what we do. Um, it seems like you know, you've brought all of the teaching. You, at some point you've got to put them into practice, I suppose, all of the things that you do in your life. <laughs> yeah. Is that what yeah. you feel you're doing? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So I mentioned that I had a chance to speak to you on the, the Druids Down Under group that I run on Facebook. And some people yeah. had some some questions. Um, oh, cool! Yeah, some of them remembered seeing you when you came to Australia. Um, I think uh -huh. to South Australia and Victoria. Uh, nearly yeah. was it seventeen years ago? Somebody said. Somebody said twenty. I'm not sure. <laughs> so With a, my little a long time ago. Yeah. Um, have you been since then, or was that your no? Um, it was shortly after then that I made a vow never to fly. Right to stop, stop flying until flying could be done without polluting. So I no longer fly. I right. connect with people with on Skype. Right. Um, yeah. I, I guess they, they wanted to know what your experience had been like um, of the land here. I have very strong memories of Australia. Okay. It was, for me, um, I hadn't travelled to the Southern Hemisphere before. I've been across northern South America, uh, but not below the equator. Um, 
and I've been across the Far East um, and across, across Europe. Um, but I hadn't been to the Southern Hemisphere and I was interested in how different it felt. Um, that was the, I think the biggest difference was the stars. There's something, there was something about the stars which just made me feel like I was in a, a strangely similar place, but a totally different environment. That's one of the key things that was different. I mean, I've been through China and Japan and 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 other places which feel quite different from Europe, but still you have the same stars. When you when you have a sense, when you spend a lot of time outdoors, watching the moon, watching the stars, um, and a lot of time, you know, mapping the constellations and all of these things and astrology and all of that, so you understand sort of. Then you look up and you think, "What? Who are you?" It's all <laughs> was upside very down. Much, <laughs> very much a sense of um, different ancestors. Mm. Um, you know, you see, however poetic it is, there's this, you know, the ancestors are all around us, but also there's that twinkle of ancestry in the stars, which to me is a mirror. It's not like I believe the ancestors are in the stars, apart from, you know, maybe millions and millions of years in stardust. <laughs> but there's a mirror in how our ancestors sitting around the fires, doing as pagans do nowadays sitting around the fires at night, watching the moon, watching the stars, sharing stories and song. And looking up and seeing different stars felt like I was in a place of different stories. Mm. And then being mostly with European, people with European ancestry in Australia, that was kind of complicated. Thinking, oh, you're all here with these different stories. Um, that was kind of weird. I, that was one of the strongest impressions that stayed with me. Mm. I, um, I was um, given an article that was in one of the magazines here that Louise Hewitt um, interviewed you for, and um, in it you said there was um, you you were speaking about the the difference between the internal ancestors and the external ancestors. Do you remember talking about that? I, I remember talking about that, not in Australia, but that's something I have yeah, spoken right. about other people. Yes. And I'm very clear about the ancestors that, that walk with us, that we walk with different ancestors. You know, I, I have a strong sense of my grandparents, my grand, my great-grandparents, you know, with me. Um, and I speak to them every day um, in my soul, in the pattern of my being and my strengths and weaknesses. Um and then I'm very aware of ancestors around us, even here, because I'm a Lond Londoner. My All my ancestry for the last two or three hundred years comes from London. Mm. London, you know, that area. And I'm a um, hundred miles from London, hundred, you know, out of London, northwest of London. And so I'm aware that the ancestors around here are not ancestors of my blood for the last two or three hundred years. And it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. um, the accents are different. You know, the, the stories are different. And the strengths and weaknesses that come through are different. So it's not just being in America or in Australia where you've got ancestry that comes from somewhere else. 
I'm aware of that in myself. And having spent the first 18, 20 years of my life spending a lot of time out of England, you know, in other parts around the world where I'm aware of my ancestry being different. So I share that experience to some extent. Mm. But I made a, a positive choice to come to England to find my ancestors and to be here and to live here and to stay here. Um, because I felt that it was it was important for me. Um, there was a weakness in my body that is hereditary, and I needed to find my grandmother and her grandmother and her line to understand what that weakness is in order to learn how to deal with it. I didn't want to escape from it. One thing about pain I have learned is that you face it right up front, you know, right there. You learn it. You don't get afraid of it. You face it and you deal with it. And the same was true with the weakness in my in my ancestry. They're all scoundrels and alcoholics, and you know, mostly because they're sensitive. They're artists and poets and gardeners and and people who were too sensitive to deal with a wild, fierce, industrial, savage world. They're the sensitive folk. And so I needed to find them in order to work out how to be sensitive in the world in a way that is positive. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, I think it's important. But I, I don't know how you live in a place where your ancestors are a long way away. And I, I, don't, I don't know how you can do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's one for us to explore. Um, yeah. I, so I'm, I'm hearing in what you're saying something that I, I suppose has really been my question for today was like what if you kept if you if you've let go of the the label druidry or druid um, you know you've explained that you kept the bard and the ovate obviously the ancestors and nature and a deep reverence for those things and if you're keeping the bardic work then creativity and your writing and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's it's interesting to me, like, there's not, this, not this idea of definitions. Like, you know, I mean, to me, those things are druidry, you know. Yep. And, um, and like you say, it's a community and we can all, you know, have different ideas. But, um, yeah, I suppose the idea of, like, why why do we want to do that? Should we be all letting go of the the term druidry or or you know why no. why would we either keep it or let it go um i think people will be considering their relationship to those terms after listening to this talk um yeah would you be able to explore that a little bit i would suggest that the most important thing is what i've tried to say for so, so many years the most important thing is that, that we're true to ourselves that we understand ourselves, we understand how we become ourselves and how we let go of ourselves. And so much of that is about community. So I've explained why I no longer call myself a druid, which has nothing to do with my beliefs. Or rather, it's all about definition of my definition of the role of the druid and nothing to do with my beliefs. My beliefs have not changed since got richer, deeper, probably hopefully more mature than in my very first books that I wrote. 
um, you know, how many years ago? How many years ago? It seems like 30 years ago. I don't know don't, don't <laughs> that. Um, my beliefs are the same as when I was crawling through the grass when I was eight years old. You know, that's, I'm the same person with the same belief, the same sense of wonder, reverence, or respect, and the same striving to understand nature. Not in a scientific way, in a spiritual way of connection and reverence. That's absolutely the same. In terms of community, my response is that it is all about personal connection, personal definition. So I uh, and the hyper feline in me, just too much cat and not enough human. Um, so I'll crawl along and, and butt my nose against someone until they stroke me and then I'll disappear immediately. They want me around. It's, <laughs> it's just, there's in no way am I critical of Druidry as a community. It's, but community doesn't suit me. And I worked in community and I worked for community and it gave me a huge amount. And I am very grateful for what I learned and what I was able to give and what I shared and what was shared with me for that experience. But I am now, I've now snuck out and, you know, part of it, there was there were moments in the early part of the century where people were talking about people who followed me. You don't follow a cat. <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> just, it's just horrendous, just terrifying. Oh I, love, I love that concept of catmans rather than dogmans. I always enjoyed that. It's great. <laughs> and the organizing pagans is like herding cats. It's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and yes, because yes, all the wolves, all the wolves will circle around, wondering what to do and who's boss, and and the cats will just be everywhere, just snarling. Um, So yes, Um, Druid, there is nothing that I have let go of. There is nothing that I've changed my mind about, apart from my ability to work within the community and the ritual form. Mm. So I no longer use the ritual form that I used to use. Um, The last time I was asked to do Druid ritual, I asked for the, the script. I went through what they were asking me to say. I adjusted it so that I could say it with integrity. And then I did something terrible. I went back to them and said, I'm really sorry, I can't do it, which really let them down, and I'm really sorry. But I couldn't do it with integrity. In other words, I couldn't find... It's words again. Is it about... It's words. Is it something to do with the scripting of ritual? Like, I often find that uh, when you talk about ritual in your books, 
these these little fiction fictional or or even biographical I'm not sure they they never really you never really know um but you have these little story with names changed yeah yeah these little story parts that you throw into your your books that are non-fiction um they always seem to have a very ecstatic element to them a very um unscripted form of ritual where where it's just putting your hands in the mud and and being naked under the stars or or you know dancing in the rain it's very um yeah it it seems like it doesn't fit in the same world in some ways with those those like let's all read out the script and take our turns and is is that part of it yes yeah right yeah I was never very good at that or reading the part I never did very well with that partly because for me ritual is should be communication it's it's an opportunity to be in a space wonderfully with other people where you can open your soul your heart your mind to the gods to the moment to the environment you're standing in and communicate listen and communicate so you make your prayers you listen to the responses you respond you sing your celebration you're a part of it. It's that's why the liturgy doesn't work for me because it's not responsive. It's not reactive, mm-hmm. in the best possible meaning of those two words. You're not listening and then reacting in that moment. It's now you need to do the next bit. Um, and I, I just couldn't couldn't find the purpose anymore. That is a part of my journey because clearly liturgy, for me, maybe not for other people, but I know it's it's about understanding the language that, and it's that language that helps you to open up. But then the language should fall away, yeah, or should become totally flexible. So the script is there because you don't yet know the words. But when you know the words, you should toss the script and just say what's in the heart. And that's how it should work. And so to keep having to come back to the script is it's um, limiting. Yeah, I totally agree, actually. I, I think that the script has its, it has its place. I, I enjoy all kinds of ritual. But the ones I enjoy the most are the ones where there's that full connection that mm-hmm. comes from, what does it come from? Knowing the energies, knowing Connect. connection, conversation, yeah, yeah, with the divine. So actually it's just being there and losing yourself into a shared moment with something else yeah. so that you're, you're right there filled with the Arwen. That's, that's the Arwen. The Arwen is, is when yourself is gone and you are connected with whatever it is in front of you or around you underneath you the moon the the air the the whole environment the whole moment time and space and the other people there if you can Mm. Um, which takes enormous trust Um, yeah and bravery um, and and practice and practice do you think that there is a pathway, though, through those scripted rituals into that? Or is it something that kind of comes more naturally to you, like 
like I'm, I'm wondering if there's a difference between a druid kind of ritual, which might be more scripted, and an ovate kind of ritual that might be more ecstatic. Is that make sense? I wonder if your if your identification with that ovate word and the bardic word are they are they more ecstatic roles? Do you think? Yes, when you're leading, when you're holding a ritual, you need to hold the space. So you need to be there to hold it. Mm. And the work of the priest, in most circumstances, is to hold the space, which requires you to remain there holding the space so that other people within that space can let go. Yeah. Um, in other ways, in a more advanced ritual, perhaps what you're doing is you are just showing people the way to let go. But in order to do that, then you are giving them responsibility for themselves, for their own journey to come and go. I mean, they need to, re you're not holding them safe. They have to disappear into their trance or connectedness or passion or whatever it may be and look after themselves at the same time. So all you're doing is showing the way. But that's advanced ritual or totally irresponsible ritual. For the most part, the person who leads the ritual is responsible for everybody there. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that, yes, I think that is definitely a part of the role of the priest, um, but not always. Um, but the ovatic ritual is the same. Sometimes the ovate is there to hold. Mm not always to let go. Yeah. And sometimes the bard is there holding the space at the edges of the story, not always sending people, you know, when you're telling a story, you're there creating, holding with the words, mm. and everyone else is lost and immersed in the story journey. So in many ways, it's the same thing. But in every way, you can do it in a way which is mm. you lose yourself or others. For me, I got to a point where I no longer felt strong enough to hold other people. In other words, I was so wild in my own insanity of spiritual exploration. Mm. I was losing so much of myself. I was finding so much wealth and richness in the darkness, in the wholeness in all the different elements, uh, that I kept losing my ability to hold the space, which for me was irresponsible and I had to stop doing it. Is that related to your letting go of that druid? That, yeah, that you wanted to go more into this, the personal experience of it all and that, wow, okay, yes. right. Yeah. Hmm. That's really interesting. That's the mystic doesn't hold space for anybody. <laughs> Not even themselves. Like, there, there's a madness about deep spiritual connection, which I've always wanted. I've always sought out. Mm. Um, a lot of people come into Druidry or, or paganism to find a community and a sense of belonging. I never did. I came into Druidry to find the ecstatic connection with nature. Um, and the community was something I learned how to cope with. Um, sometimes not very well, sometimes okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
I think a lot of us can relate to that. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, oh gosh, I could talk to you about this for a long time. <laughs> I love that we've gone there. That's been really interesting to talk to you about. So yeah, where are you where are you headed now? What are you doing now? What's the journey ahead for you? What where, where is Emma Restalor going? <laughs> or even the um the person who refuses to be defined by the label of Emma Restalor. <laughs> Thank you. Um I have um a few years ahead of me still working on the project I'm working on in Sunrising. And then my plan is to um, slip away further into um, isolation in order to let go more of that responsibility and have some years of deep spiritual connection with the gods in a way which allows me to be a little more crazy. Um, <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> so I know that sounds weird, but I am actually planning it quite carefully. <laughs> but my sense is that I have another 10 years or so of working life. I don't know what will happen in the future. Everything is a bit crazy in the world, but then I would hope to have 10 years um, of deep spiritual exploration. Um, I'm not sure where that will be. Um, and I, I don't even know if it will be in England, but it will be, um, That's that's my aim, to move from the responsible for something that's shared in the community to a point where it's just deep exploration. And from there, I intend to slip away. So well, I'll probably disappear I, even more. <laughs> I love that I can be encouraging of the the um, the journey that, that doesn't, you know, fit the, the capitalist model of always being more and more and more all the time, but it can be less... And, and be more valuable always, as a result. It's beautiful. Yeah, so, yeah. absolutely. Less and less. Um, I look around, I have a house, and there are things in the house, and constantly we are letting go of things, and everything is, this is my husband and myself, and we think about what will come with us on the next great, on the great escape. When we go, what will we take with us? And I think it's no more than a rucksack. I think at the end of life, you should, just shouldn't have anything. Just let go of everything. It's like yeah. the less and less you have, the more and more important the, the few things you have become, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a good pen knife, yes. uh, a good mug, uh, a teddy bear. <laughs> a good bit of rope <laughs> as far yes. as, or, a, or a, things to make a tent out of, stuff that you can have multiple That's uses. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and enough... But to put it in sensible terms, you also need enough resources so that you don't become dependent or draining mm. of the community around you. Mm. And I think that's one of the – a lot of what I, my work is at the moment is I'm working with older people, um, people in their 70s, 80s, 90s, and understanding old age – most of my work is around old age and death and understanding where we start relinquishing responsibility, where we start 
being unable to cope with responsibility and how we end up dependent in our older age. I don't think we can do it anymore. Centuries ago, it was hard on families, but families retained a coherence that allowed for every generation um, and was involved in that family. We don't have those sorts of things. I certainly don't have children who will look after me. Um, and I think that's important. It's important for us to be responsible when we look forward into old age um, so that we're not dependent on government. Governments are falling apart, mm. you know. Yeah. The whole idea that there will be retirement pensions and social care and, and hospitals, you know, that can afford us in a growing population with reducing resources, I think we need to seriously consider how we mitigate for our old age so that we don't end up draining those we love, draining the social system, you know, draining the government, all of those things. It's important for a huge population moving into the baby boomers, you know, coming into old age. So there you go. Ended it on a serious note. Yes. <laughs> responsible for our own passing is, I think, it's important. It's respons being responsible for our own dying, um, instead of just assuming that God's in control. Mm. Um, when God's in control, you you can end up living a lot longer than is graceful or sensible um, or is kind on those around us. Um, and that's an important an important thing to think about. Dangerous thing to think about. Yes. Think <laughs> about. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's um Well if my if my words provoke questions that you need answering I need answering from people saying, What did she how could what and then come back and tell me and I'll I don't give you some answers. I, um, I don't think anyone will at all. I think that what you've said is incredibly personal and um, relatable. So thank you. Good. I hope that that's what I've always done. Mm, always. Some personal, a bit of truth. It's yes. important. You're my favourite author. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> even if you. you're even if you're not into your own stuff anymore i don't know i am <laughs> i am no i am really i no, do I, I read some of it and i think oh I, yeah I, I believe all of that still it's, yeah oh, it's, good. Don't, good. don't think i've rejected anything <laughs> no it's just i've just got a bit crazier <laughs> <laughs> no it's been really great talking to you thank you so much thank you i'll talk to you again you. sometime <laughs>